terms of getting my jersey retired. Honestly, it was a goal early on in my freshman year when I came into Lehigh University and Stable Arena. I remember looking at those banners up there and I just wasn't sure how I would feel about it and what stage of my life I would be in when the time came, but just nice to see everything come true. Being able to speak to the referees in a positive manner where you're not saying derogatory things to them or you know, speaking down on them too long, too consistently. I think it happens throughout the entire game to where we complain a lot. So then the refs aren't sure if we're just complaining to complain or if they were actually wrong. So finding that balance is something that we have to do as professional athletes. I didn't hear how the argument initially started. I just know that Nurk's not one to hold punches and that he has a quick temper, so to speak, in, in certain situations to where whatever he thinks, he's going to say. Nurk had 24 and 10 in 24 minutes. So yeah, exactly. He can talk as much as he wants if he's going to play like that. Welcome to the Tom Glavin episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 47, currently in Boston. Wrapping up a lovely, lovely day. It's been an awesome week where I was able to get back to campus at Lehigh, have my jersey retired, play a game in Philly in front of hundreds of alum, play a game in Brooklyn in front of hundreds of alumni, go home to Cleveland and play in front of hundreds of family members and friends. It's been an incredible week, and now we're recording a podcast. So without further ado, we will welcome Jordan Schultz to the pull-up pod. we got a lot of great games to watch tonight on Players Only, and we will also be able to get some great rest before we take on the Boston Celtics tomorrow on their second night of a back-to-back. Always a good thing to get the Celtics on a back-to-back. I mean, I can't imagine you feel too badly for them, CJ. I hope the game goes into triple overtime tonight, honestly, so that they're exhausted. Cripple! Why not quadruple? We can make it quadruple. Honestly, that would be that would be even better for us. That means they'll get less sleep, they'll burn more calories, more energy, they'll be dehydrated for sure, and uh, we'll have a, a slight advantage. Well, I tell you who we take on the Boston. Celtics. I tell you who had a slight advantage this week was uh, Mr. McCollum himself. Congratulations on getting your jersey inducted into Lehigh. It was incredible to see from afar and love to, for you to take us through that. It was an amazing opportunity um, for me to be able to have some of my family there, uh, my fiance, my friends, and uh, ex-teammates uh, able to come out and watch a game at Lehigh. It's been a little while since I've been back, probably about two years since I've been able to attend a game. So a lot has changed with the arena and, and some of the things they do pre and post game. But uh, it was just an amazing experience. And my family and I are thankful we were able to you know, be able to make that trip, you know, in the middle of the season, the schedule guys kind of looked out and Marquise Hall, uh, who was my point guard my freshman year um, and won a championship together. He now works for Nike. He was able to kind of coordinate, you know, our schedules, looking at everything and seeing that we had an opening, you know, after the Philadelphia 76er game to where I could potentially uh, come back to campus uh, with, on what would happen to be senior night uh, for two of our seniors. But man, it was just amazing. You know, the, the love and support that I've received from them over the course of my career and them coming to games, even when I was getting DMPs, coming to games to support me. Um, it, it means a lot. And just the the memories uh, that, that came to mind. And as I drove past uh, the bodega stores, as I, as I drove past uh, the Goose, some of the restaurants and, and places I used to go, the campus, everything just brought back so many memories. It was an amazing time for me. Is, is that more so... What makes it special? Less so the the basketball itself, but the the day to day, and like you said, you know, being reminded of the bodegas and just being around the guys. Like I feel like that's what really 
makes it special, especially for you, who was at Lehigh for four years. Yeah, it's a cultivation of, of everything, honestly. The basketball is what it was. It was a great time. You know, it was a a place for me to kind of find my my soul, you know what I mean? Find my peace and work and and try to develop and, and become an NBA player. But the people, the people that you meet there, the people that come in contact with your life and it have lasting impact on it, the relationships I was able to form, you know, from going to Lehigh and just the adversity I faced, you know, tough losses, you know, getting hurt, you know, good games, bad games, winning championships, the the roller coaster of emotions that you go through. And then they kind of put everything together where you, you see the videos and uh, just the, the amount of people that, you know, put put work and effort into making that that night special just meant a lot to me. And, uh, you know, like I, like I told my teammates, if you've been through what I've been through, you'd, you'd be emotional too because uh, I made a lot out of nothing. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Did you ever think this would happen while you were there, CJ? Or was this ever a dream of yours? Yeah, it's something that I – wanted to happen something that I thought was possible and and honestly it was a goal early on in my career you know my freshman year when I came into uh Lehigh University and Stable Arena I remember looking at those banners up there Darren Queen and Mike Palaha and asking about them you know learning more about their history what they've done for the game their statistics you know how many championships they won all those things just to kind of figure out what I would have to do to 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 get my name up there to have my last name on a jersey and um, honestly, it's exactly how I planned it, exactly how I thought it would be in terms of getting my jersey retired. I just wasn't sure how I would feel about it and what stage of my life I would be in when the time came. But, man, I worked so hard. I spent so many hours in that gym, so many nights in those gyms. And uh, it, it's just nice to see everything come true. And it's funny being with some of my uh, ex-teammates. You know, they were telling stories about, you know, how, you know, we would go out, you know, until 12.31, 1.30 a.m., and then I would go straight to the gym from wherever we were at, and I would tell the guys, hey, I'm going to go work out if you guys want to come. And a lot of them would say, like, man, I'm way too many too many beers deep to, to come work out with you, man. I'll catch you next time. Or, you know, the next night I might text the guys and say, hey, I'm going to get me a midnight workout in because I love to work out at night before I go to sleep. And guys would be like, ah, uh, you got it, man. One day, <laughs> one day, all this work you put in going to pay off for you. And uh, it's, it's funny to see that it, it, it has. CJ, did you... Uh it looked like you were a little emotional. Did you tear up? What, what was what was going through your mind? Yeah, I shed some thug tears, man, for sure. Um, just uh, everything, you know, what I went through, um, just thinking about my childhood, how hard I worked to get to this point, all the things I wanted to accomplish, you know, in high school, in college, uh, being able to attain a degree, forming relationships, uh, meeting my fiance, um, making lifelong friends. And I'm still good friends with my roommates to this day. Like so many people came out for me, like, B.J. Bailey, uh, Gabe Knudsen, uh, Holden Griner made a video. He was also my roommate. Uh, Zaire Carrington, Marquise Hall, uh, Matt Sheamus, who I played with one year. I was a freshman. He was a senior. Uh, Jordan Hamilton, who we won a championship with. John Adams. You know, all those people came out. You know, my financial advisor, my business manager, all my all my people, my agent, my family, and my cousin. So it was just nice to have everybody there so they could kind of see and understand and appreciate, you know, what I was able to accomplish coming from a small place like this. When you hear about Lehigh, you know, you read about it, but it's another thing to actually be on campus and come to a game and, and see exactly what I came from. Shout out to Jayham, by the way, Seattle product. Went to Seattle Prep. I went to U Prep. Yeah, Jordan Hamilton. Yeah. Great dude. I used to play man. against great Jordan dude. a lot. And, uh, all those guys, Zaire, those are just great guys, and uh, that, that's a bond that you'll have forever. It was really cool for 
for me to watch it from from afar. And I don't know if you saw my video. Did you see it? Uh, I did. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. I made the thank you. I seen your video. I saved them all to my phone. I haven't watched all right. them all yet, but I saved them all. So I'm really looking forward to watching them all and kind of storing them somewhere. So yeah. When I'm 50, 60 years old, I can go back and go back and watch them and see how young we all looked. Well, I think the way you take care of your body, you're going to be like 50 going on 32. So you'll be all right. You'll be all right. Um, well, that's very cool. Congratulations. And uh, as I said in the video, you, you, you deserve everything that life may give you, not just hoop. And uh, it's just the beginning. Um, second half of the season is underway. Well, really more than the second half, but post-All-Star break. Obviously, Rodney Hood and his canner, they are in the lineup. They are a big part of what you're trying to accomplish now. Um, how have they, you know, adjusted to Portland, to the team? And have you had a chance to spend some time with them off the floor? They've adjusted well to Portland and the team, although probably more so the team than Portland because we've been on the road so much. Ennis has yet to play a game in Portland because we signed him right after the or right before the Warrior game before All-Star break. Rodney Hood's probably more familiar with the play calling, more familiar with us as a whole because he was here a few games earlier and was able to play in Portland, but overall they're adapting well, they're adjusting well. They have very very unique games uh, that translate to our team. Rodney being very good in mid-range, solid defender, cerebral player who understands movement, who understands spacing, who understands the team concept of basketball, how he can contribute, and is continuing to learn our plays. Ennis is a walking double double, as I said before. You know, big body, strong, carves out space, uh, screen setter. Offensive rebounding threat, guy who can go back to basket, loves the left shoulder, and has a great personality, as we've seen off the court. Um, you know, he's been known to make jokes. He's been known to be involved in the media for different things. But his, his work ethic and his approach to the game is, is unlike anything I've seen in terms of big, versatile right. guys. You know, Myers works extremely hard. Zach works extremely hard. And now Ennis will be a seamless fit along with Nurk for a guy who's going to, you know, set the standard in the weight room. I just think that the lineup flexibility that you get with those two guys, Hood as a guy that, you know, big wing that can score and guard a few spots, good rebounder. And then Canner, like you said, is a double-double. I mean, he is incredibly productive. And uh, I've seen him in New York for quite some time. And, uh, you know, he, he just puts up numbers. I mean, it doesn't matter where he is. I, I think both of those guys give you flexibility. Canner can play with Nurk. Uh, you can put him at the five, the four. Hood can play a few spots. I think you guys got better, CJ, and you know it shows. You've been playing great basketball, thirty-seven and twenty-three, one of the best home teams in the NBA, and uh, you, you really you kind of had that. You got off hot, then you had a a lull, and it just seems like you figured it out. I don't know if that's because guys are fresh or because uh, you know coaching or I, I don't know what it is, but whatever happened between the last month or so. This is the best basketball you played all year, I think, including the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, honestly. Uh, the, the season is a roller coaster, and you go through winning streaks and losing streaks and injuries and, and health issues and rotational battles and coaching staff trying to figure out who they like for certain matchups, who they like for closing lineups, who do they like in the third quarter. And as the season progresses, guys kind of get more comfortable and settle into a role. But I think the biggest difference in our team has been health, being able to have rest because our schedule early on was brutal. We had the hardest schedule in the NBA up until All-Star break. A lot of travel, a lot of back-to-backs. Um, obviously, being in Portland, 
we rack up the most miles every season. So I think that kind of played a factor in our schedule. Now we have the most uh, away games of any team, you know, in our last uh, 25 games or so. So we have to be able to take advantage of each game. And historically, we've been great after All-Star break. We've always had to dig ourselves out of a hole, you know, being 10 games over under 500 two, three years ago, being in a, a race for the eight seed two years ago, and then last year basically playing the entire season in hopes of uh, a home seed uh, ended up beating Utah last game in the regular season to clinch a third and home court advantage. So we know it's at stake. We're battle tested. We've made some new additions to the roster, some changes and, and critiques to the roster. And as you get older, you just kind of figure out how to preserve your body, how to try to peak at the right time and how to extend you know, wins and and try to prevent bad losses. Right, right. Well, you're you're six in the NBA and offensive efficiency. That number has been going up. So whatever you're doing, it's working. Um, what did you see from Nurk and Ben Simmons? That was a fun little <laughs> tiff, I guess you could call it. Um, obviously, Simmons is at the free throw line. Nurk says a few words. Ben Simmons says a few words back. And then, you know, kind of died down. But I got to tell you, it was one of those, like, Oh, that just happened kind of deals. Like I didn't expect that, but were were you like did you hear what was going on and and what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I heard what was going on, man. Honestly, I think it's just two guys who are competing at the highest level and aren't going to take any disrespect or, or slights from anyone. Obviously, I always support my teammates, and uh, I'm always going to side with them whether they're right or wrong. But I didn't hear how the argument initially started. I just know that Nurk's not one to hold punches and that he has a quick temper, so to speak, in, in certain situations to where whatever he thinks, he's going to say. He, he He's not afraid of any confrontation. He's not afraid of contact or anything no. like that. So I thought that, you know, he did what he wanted he wanted to do in that situation, which was stick up for himself. And I think the refs, you know, were quick to jump to a technical because they were just talking to each other. It wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, over the over the over the line or over the edge in terms of disrespect. It wasn't on no, you know, Gary Payton like levels. It was just, you know, one one person commenting on the other, the other one talking about his jump shot, the other one saying someone sucked. End of story. Basically that was yeah. you know, kinda how it went. But Nurk had twenty four and ten in twenty four minutes. So Yeah, exactly. He can talk as much as he wants if he's gonna play like that. Yeah, I mean, well here here's my thing. Like, you know, Ben Simmons is a great young player, but he's still one of the worst free throw shooters in the league. Nurk, seventy six percent. As a center, I mean, the guy is one of the best big man shooters, especially at the line. So uh, I didn't really get Simmons' uh, argument, but nonetheless, it was fun to watch. Uh, also, Nurk is the Bosnian beast. He's not somebody that backs down. And I've been told by quite a few people, he's one of, like, literally the strongest players in the NBA. Is that is that accurate? He's definitely up there. I mean, talking about a guy whose father is – like six ten, seven foot, four hundred yeah. pounds, and the whole family has alleged has allegedly beat up fifteen people at once before, and is a and is a police officer. You know what I mean? Like that that goes back to his roots. That's his bloodline of of being a competitor and an enforcer, someone who's going to protect the house. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it just just personally, you know. Um, Okay, so there's a lot going on in the league right now with refs, and you mentioned that the refs got involved there pretty quickly. You know, Scott Foster is a controversial ref. Uh, in 2016, the LA Times asked 10 different executives, players, et cetera, um, to vote on referees. Scott Foster was voted the worst referee. Um, also, additionally, J- James Harden, who was obviously not happy. I thought three of those four offensive calls, offensive fouls, were bad. Nevertheless, he was not happy. And the last time James Harden fouled out 
was December of 2017 when Scott Foster was refing that game. So putting, you know, all this, um, I guess, on the table, how important is it to be able to have a conversation, see, with the referee? Because obviously you're going to have disagreements, but that to me is the biggest deal here with Scott Foster. I, his inability or, you know, lack of desire to talk to players, that seems to be the biggest problem. I think Scott Foster's had a lot of issues with players on opposing teams you know, throughout his career, obviously, more specifically the Houston Rockets, as we've seen James Harden's fouled out in two games, and it's been two games Scott Foster refereed. Although I thought I thought that last charge was a charge. He definitely ran him over. There's probably some some things that happen throughout a game that, you know, kind of piss you off as a player when you can't have a conversation with a referee. So I think the biggest thing is continuing to have that dialogue, being able to take constructive criticism. We're professional athletes, but we're also playing a game that means a lot to us. You know, the the stakes are high. So we may react a, a certain way because of the energy level we have, the excitement we have, and the anger we have in a flash of a second. But for the love of the game, you're supposed to allow us to react, you know, for that second, that two, three seconds, and then we're supposed to calm down and chill out. And at that moment when we don't, that's when you give us a technical. But I think a lot of times it's too quick. You know, being able to allow us to respond to a play because it's an emotional game is something that's necessary. But then being able to speak to the referees in a positive way and in a positive manner where you're not, you know, saying derogatory things to them or, you know, speaking down on them too long, too consistently. I think it happens throughout the entire game to where we complain a lot. So then the refs aren't sure if we're just complaining to complain or if they were actually wrong. So finding that balance it's something that we have to do as professional athletes. And I think some guys do a great job of it and some guys do a terrible job of it. It just depends on, you know, the referees and the arena you're in. And that a lot of times that can lead to technical fouls or controversial calls that, you know, really piss you off and, and cause you to get a $25,000 fine right. post-game for criticizing the officials. Do you, uh, is there ever a point where you'll look at who's refing a game or the crew or before the game, when you see who's refing, you you reach out and you you might talk to somebody just to get a feel for how that night might go, or just say hello. Like, how does what's your process with that? We get a text message the night before, or the night, or the day of the game. Uh, every game on who's refereeing, a history of them, you know, their background, you know, what, what they did, what they did for a living before they became referees, where they're from, all that stuff, and gives us a kind of an idea of if they like to call it three seconds, if they're more prone to calling moving screens, if they let you play on the perimeter, or if they're quick to call hand-checking fouls. It kind of gives you a breakdown of what to expect, you know, as you come, you know, into into the game that night. And I think that better prepares us. Obviously, uh, we don't get a lot of free throws, but I'm just trying to figure out ways to constantly get to the free throw line and, and get easy baskets. But our staff, uh, more specifically Coach Terry and some of the people we've hired, Don Vaden, who used to work for the uh, – for the league and, and, and refereeing crews, giving us a heads up on what, what to expect, how to manipulate the referees in our favor in terms of understanding the rule book. You know, it's not about cheating or trying to take advantage. It's about knowing the rule book, knowing where the referee is going to be at on the court. So, you know, all right, he's supposed to see this three seconds. He should see I'm coming off this screen and my jersey's being pulled. Whereas if you're not aware, then it's harder for you to execute certain things and, and get away with fouls or actually receive fouls. Right. Right. Shifting gears a little bit, MBPA, obviously you were in the Bahamas with quite a few big-name players. And um, how did that go? But also, This is during All-Star. But also, um, with what's going on potentially with the NBA draft and the age, 
players being able to leave at 18 or 19. Um, what do you think the solution is, and what are your goals personally see, especially someone that's so involved actively with the MBPA? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we had a great time in the Bahamas, you know, being able to discuss some of the things that are going on across the NBA, some of the issues we're having, some of the things that the uh, teams are trying to put in place, and just getting a better understanding of, you know, what we want to accomplish as a whole to to make our game better. It's been fun. It's been a fun ride as a as a person who's serving on the executive committee as one of the one of the six vice presidents. I've been very involved in the discussions, as you said before, on the age limit. You know, figuring out what makes sense um, for all parties involved on reducing the age limit. Obviously, we want, we want to protect uh, future generations and put them in the best position to succeed. So, figuring out if that's what's necessary, if that's you know in their favor, and then also figuring out ways to improve the G League because if you change the uh, one and done rule and allow players to come in younger, that means more players are probably going to fail. Because everybody's not going to be LeBron James. Everybody's not Zion Williamson. Everybody's not necessarily ready to, to play and perform at this level. So figuring out ways to improve the, the developmental leagues, figuring out you know ways to improve the roster from a standpoint of our 13 guys dressing, our 12 guys dressing, our 15 guys dressing. You know, how do we keep players involved that you know declare for the draft, but don't have that understanding of education, don't have that understanding of how to hire certain people? So making sure we're facilitating the proper um, ingredients for allowing players to players and not only players but their families to receive education on what this is like. You have to hire a financial advisor. You got guys who are going to make millions of dollars that come from a situation where they're not used to it. They're not accustomed to this lifestyle. So, trying to prepare them for for everything, and then just trying to come to an agreement with the owners. There's certain things that they want. There's certain things that we want to see happen in our game, and it's about meeting people halfway and being able to come up with the proper solutions. And do you feel like you, you're making progress? And, and what's the what does that look like in terms of timing? Uh, I'm honestly not sure if we're making progress or not. Yeah. But I should be uh, I should be hearing from uh, Michelle, Michelle in the coming yeah. weeks uh, to see what uh, Yeah, talking about Michelle Roberts, proposal, too. Because obviously they make a proposal, yeah. and then we counter. I'm yeah. sorry, what did you say? I was just saying, yeah, uh, for those who don't know, Michelle Roberts, who's really running this whole deal, and she's terrific. Um, I've been very impressed with her. Do you feel the same? Yeah, yeah. Michelle Roberts has done a great job uh, with our union, you know, being the the president of the Players Association, being able to you know, serve as that liaison where, you know, we're, we're getting feedback, you know, from her based on the conversations and discussions yeah. she's having with the NBA, the discussions she's having with, uh, you know, certain team owners and ownership in terms of, what they're trying to implement in our game, what we'd like to implement in our game, and how we can make it better. So, you know, the proposal should be coming back to us, you know, at some point, and we'll continue to try to move forward and, and figure out ways to, you know, create the safest environment, the the most elite environment, to where people, kids, fans, uh, everyone is happy. I wonder, do you feel like there's there is a path for kids um, to go to Europe? Instead of going to school, if they want to get ready for the NBA and that professional lifestyle um, before declaring for the draft? I don't know if there's a path, but I think the opportunity is available to certain players. Obviously, Brandon Jennings did it about 12 years ago. 30. Brandon Jennings, yep. And uh, it's it's different. The game has changed. People are more aware of European basketball. Obviously, there's more European players in the league now than there, than there ever has been. Uh, the scouts and the scouting services that we have and, and that are available to us allow us to gain more information on these players 
and on potential players who want to go from the United States, like a Terrence Ferguson to an Australia or somewhere of that nature. So I believe the avenues are available. It's just more about educating the players on what it's like overseas because it's different. You know, it's not a free-flowing game. It's more structure. Uh, coaches are more on, on par with college coaches, you know, the way they kind of handle things. Yeah, the rules from a disciplinary standpoint, you know, a lot of times, depending on the country you're in, you have one game a week. If you're in two leagues, you have two games a week. So that means you're going to have a lot of practices. Uh, certain countries and cities, the, the coaching staff will make you stay in a hotel for home games, similar to football. Uh, there's curfew. Some cities, they don't like you going out. You can get fined for leaving your hotel after 10 p.m. There's certain rules and structure that American players may not be used to. Mm. From a payment standpoint, you know, if depending on the country you're in, if it's not a stable government, if the bank's not stable, the situation's not stable, they've been known to hold back paychecks. They've been known to, to fine players for, for bad losses. Say you lose to a, a bottom-tier team, they've been known to hold back paychecks. Um, there's a lot of interesting things that are involved in the European game. There was an article written, written about the European game and uh, firsthand accounts of players telling stories. My brother was also involved in that. And obviously, with him playing eight, nine years, I've heard some crazy stories yeah. about punishment practices you know, losing to a bottom tier team, flying back home and practicing at 2 a.m. You know, it's not all glam and glory, you know, overseas. A lot of times you could make great money. There's some great situations and circumstances to where it isn't like that. But there's also some terrible instances where, you know, players have lost their love for the game, you know, by being in Europe. Right. Yeah. So what I would say to that, too, is, um, you know, I, I've been extremely critical of the NCAA, especially uh, Division One, with you know, like, as we said last week with Duke and Zion, and my feeling is that college athletes should be paid. With that said, you know, it's very easy to just say, well, go to Europe, get paid, and play. But the system in place in Europe is so much different. For one, you have, like, these are pros. Guys are 25, 30, 35 years old, and you're traveling. It's not, it's, it's not the glitz and glamour, like you said, unless you're at a really, really high club. Paychecks get held. I've heard it a hundred times. You know, living conditions are not great. You're not in a dorm with all your boys and going to class and then going to practice. It's just an entirely different deal. Plus, you're thousands of miles away from home. And it can be great, but it can also be a disaster. So to just say, and that's what I wanted to ask you, because to just say, well, go to Europe. Don't play college basketball. That, to me, is a very case-by-case basis. And that's why I think it's so important that we're examining, as you are, the age limit with the draft. And I think it's really good to see that you're having these conversations that owners, Adam Silver, are at least open to to, to change. Um, I think it's a very healthy thing, this communication. Yeah, for sure. And I think you, you hit it right on the head. And this is the first time I've said that in two episodes. Yes, it is. You look at... <laughs> You look at the NCAA, it's obvious something needs to change. They're generating all this money. They're paying coaches millions of dollars. They're selling merchandise. They're getting apparel sponsorships and deals for the universities for hundreds of millions of dollars. And the players aren't benefiting. So it's easy to say go to Europe. And I think there are some avenues and players who can take that route, who are mature enough or have the stability from their families who may be able to come with them to make sure that it's a smooth process and smooth transition. But as as we both know, everybody's not built for Europe. Everybody's not built for that structure. Some people can play in those settings and some people would flourish more so in the league. So it's a case-by-case basis, but it's obvious something needs to change, something needs to be done to um, benefit the players so that they're not exposed you know, by the collegiate system. 
Um, but it's it's it appears as if something is on the way. It appears yeah. as, as if an answer is coming. Uh, and I don't necessarily think the answer is going to be with the NCAA paying players. Yeah, I, I that yeah, I cannot imagine that happening. I've been super impressed with um, with Adam Silver. I've had a chance to spend a good amount of time with him, and he's um, he's a progressive thinker. He's he's it's his time, and you've seen the differences from David Stern to Adam. Drastic differences. The league has gotten better and healthier, uh, specifically off the floor, with how we're approaching these issues. And this is a perfect example of it, this kind of communication. I think it's a good thing. Um, one good thing that is not so good anymore that we thought, or at least I thought would be perfect, is the Lakers. I thought this was going to be a healthy situation. LeBron, you know, I know that Paul George did not come, and we knew that it wouldn't be, uh, it would only be a matter of time, at least I thought so again, that we'd have a superstar flanking LeBron. This this season has not gone well in a lot of in a lot of ways, quite honestly, for them. LeBron's health, big part of it. How much have you paid attention to the Lakers, and how surprised are you that they're having these types of issues right now, eleventh in the West? Uh, obviously, it's hard not to pay attention to the Lakers because they're on TV every day, they're on social media every day. They're the headline of basically every major story that comes out. You know, whether it's a LeBron quote a trade rumor or them just simply, you know, pointing out something that's happening throughout their game. But yep. I'm not surprised at, at their struggles. They're a very young team playing in the Western Conference. This is this is a big boy league, as, as Brian has pointed out. This is a no boys allowed type of league. And you have to have experience. You have to be able to consistently perform every night. You have to be healthy. There's a lot of things that go into a productive season. The Lakers haven't been healthy. They haven't been consistent. There's been rumors, there's been, there's been things to kind of deter their play and, and how they're performing. And I think the combination of everything has affected them. Bron being hurt, Lonzo Ball being hurt, rotation issues, Rondo being hurt, rumors about players getting traded. And then, you know, you go on a, a little losing spell where you drop some games and then the headlines start to pick up. And I think that is that affecting the team more than they thought. And I don't think it's affecting Brandon Ingram. I don't think it's affecting Kyle Kuzma. I think it's affecting the other guys, their mentality, their mindset, their efficiency, their ability to produce, their rotation. It's hard. It's hard playing in the NBA as it is, and it has to be a little bit harder for some of those players to play under the microscope of a, of a big city like L.A. because they're going to point out your faults. They're going to bring up every issue, every perceived problem that's happening on a nightly basis, and you have to be very mature to handle those types of things. And I think the the younger guys have shown they can perform. Brandon Ingram's been playing well. Kyle Kuzma's been playing well all season. You got two guys who were under 23 years old, averaging close to 20 points a night on, you know, 46, 47% shooting from the field. The problem is their depth, their bench, the consistency in their bench, their defense. You know, that center position, JaVale McGee has played well, you know, early on in this season, but I think that rim protection you know, is, isn't consistent. It's up and down. I think that their overall defensive intensity and how they're approaching the game isn't consistent based on the amount of points they're giving up to teams, you know, like the Memphis Grizzlies, who aren't necessarily a fast-paced team, but they're putting up 120, 130 points on you. Yeah, I, I'm going to steal a CJ-ism and say you hit it right on the head. How about that? <laughs> um, I am surprised, though, because I know as good as the West is, I, I still thought that they would find a way to – um, put themselves in a, in a good playoff position, and you know they, they still might make the playoffs. But the bottom line is they uh, 
they can't shoot. They're they're the only the only teams worse in the NBA in three point shooting are Memphis and Phoenix. And just to give you an idea of who's ahead of the Lakers, right ahead the Knicks, Pistons, and Mavericks. So these are not playoff teams, and th- you know that that's a big problem. They have not been able to make shots, and you can almost see LeBron look at the bench sometimes as as if to say, "I don't know what to do." And when he starts to feel helpless, then I think the young guys do. But to your point about Kuzma and specifically Ingram. Those guys have been really good. Ingram over his last five, 25 and seven, 54%. I tweeted that last night because I feel like he's been getting hammered. He got crossed last night. People just make fun of him. If you get play in the NBA, you're going to get crossed. The guy has been really good. Kuzma's been very good. Uh, Lonzo, when he's played, has been pretty good. And their defense, their their rating defic- uh, defensive wise has been in the top five with him on the floor, and it's 27th when he's not on the floor. So, you know, health is a big problem too, but. Uh, at some point, I just thought LeBron would galvanize these guys. I know Sacramento's been better, and the Clippers have surprised, but it, right now they're not a playoff team. And like you said, the West is so loaded. Is this is this fixable? I mean, is it just like let's get another star there, whether it's AD or somebody else, Kawhi? Is that what they need? You know, like how how, how do we fix this if you're the Lakers? I don't know what they need honestly, but it's obvious that they're going to be in a struggle, right? Uh, for the foreseeable future in terms of trying to make the playoffs this season and then in terms of what's going to happen from a free agency standpoint with a lot of the players under the impression that they could be traded. Right, right. Um, it's an interesting position to be in, and it's obvious that something's going to change at some point. You just don't know when. Um, looking at the Western Conference, a lot of the bottom-tier teams historically are better now, Sacramento Kings being one of them, who's in the position to make the playoffs. The Spurs, who went 1-7 and seven on their trip, on their infamous trip, uh, the worst record they've had since they began taking this trip, are still in a position to make the playoffs. So you got a, a Laker team who's 11th in standings right now, who's dropped uh, consecutive games to the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, who were without uh, Jaron Jackson. And now they're going to be going home sh- shortly in they basically should have lost three or four games in a row. That Houston game. The Houston game, they were down uh, the 19. The Rockets were up about. Yeah. yeah, down 19, and, you, and you're able to come back and win that game. So that just kind of shows you, you know, the, the parity yeah. Uh, yeah. of this league. Each game is crucial. Each game is very important. Yeah, no, I know. And, and to your point about Memphis, like, I mean, they, they're the biggest sellers of all. They, they, they're really looking forward to their future. They had dropped four straight, including – uh, losses to the Cavs and Bulls before they beat the Lakers, and that just can't happen. It's it's unacceptable if you're if you're a LeBron and the Lakers, and and they're really in a tough position. Um, I tell you who else was in a tough position. This is my professional segue. Your teammates stuck in an elevator. We were talking about this before the segment, before the show. Uh, how did you find? Or how did you manage to avoid this? And have you heard from some of your guys because they were stuck in there? Ennis, Rodney Hood. Uh, they were stuck in there for 30 minutes, at least six, seven guys. Pretty uh, pretty bad situation. And what, what were your thoughts on that, CJ? Yeah, that's very unfortunate. And I'm sorry my teammates were, were in that position. I was uh, fortunate enough to not be in that position. Um, I, I elected to lift in the hotel, uh, get some treatment, get a massage, and, and kind of relax. Some guys elected to go to the gym and shoot. And I, I guess when they came back, they took the wrong elevator and were forced to be stuck in the elevator without air conditioning and only um, handheld snacks like Nature Valley crunch bars and things of that nature. But 
they were able to overcome it. Um, they were able to overcome uh, this tragic, tragic event. And <laughs> I'm thankful they were able to, to, to get out of this situation, but I'm also thankful that I was not involved. I don't know if you've ever been in the position of that being that vulnerable, but personally, I have. Um, I think it was my junior year college. We were coming back, I believe, from Utah State. We got stuck at LAX in an elevator. I pretty much the whole team, and it was really hot, and I, I, I thought it was at least 45, maybe an hour. It's a terrible situation, no oxygen. Um, have, you, have you ever been in that situation, C, or no? Uh, I've never been stuck on an elevator, uh, knock on wood. I'm thankful that I've never had to go through that and hope that I am fortunate and lucky and blessed enough to never experience <laughs> the feeling of being claustrophobically trapped uh, who knows how many floors above ground. More show in a minute, but first, support for Pull Up with C.J. McCollum comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash pull up to get 10% off. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Okay, back to the show. So if the season ended today, the Blazers would play the Rockets. And from just for me as a fan, selfishly, I would love to see this series. Do you, when do you start to think about the playoffs? In terms of matchups, see? Um, I think later on in the season, you start to think about matchups. Uh, as of right now, I'm just really focused on developing uh, each night, you know, tightening some things up, uh, staying efficient, staying sharp, staying healthy, and doing whatever it takes for us to win games. But I won't really look into you know, matchups until, um, you know, 75. Right. I'd say in that range when we've played about 75 games right. where we maybe have like a, a week and a half left of basketball. I mean, I don't even know if you have time if you want to because you got to scout for the next game. And, I mean, it's it's not like – like, here's the thing. NBA Live, you have a lot of downtime, but you also – a lot of that's focus and deliberate. And when you're not 
working on your body or basketball, isn't that like the last thing you want to think about? Yeah, and it's so many unknowns right now. You don't really want to worry about who you're playing against or right. all that stuff. You just go hoop. You show up to the gym, you do your job, and I think that's the, the mindset I've always had. I don't care who we play. Uh, they're all going to be good teams. They're all going to be, you know, good guards, good big men, probably going to have good good home court advantages on, on, on all their sides. So you just got to be ready to play. But you can't worry about things you can't control. We can't control who we play. We can't control other people's rosters. We can't control other people's uh, standings throughout the rest of the season. We can only control us winning and losing games and how we approach it. So we got to continue to approach the game the same way, win as many games as possible, you know, get 50 wins, get home court, and whoever steps into that gym is going to be ready for a dogfight. Well, I'll tell you what, you did that last night, and I've been waiting to get to this, and I'm really excited to talk about this game because I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen you play a more efficient game. You were 12 of 18 last night, 7 of 8 from 3, 35 points, and a 13-point win over Cleveland. At what point in that game do you realize it's going to be a great night? Is it because you know you find a rhythm really early? Do you feel great before the game in terms of your body? Like, How does that when do you know it's a special night? Uh, well, I didn't shoot particularly well against Philly. I had some good looks that that didn't drop for me. So I figured I was due uh, to hit some threes and, and to have an efficient night. Um, based on the looks I was getting early on, ball was moving. You know, I had good balance in my step. I had a good little rhythm, you know, in my dip. And I just tried to be aggressive. I wasn't sure what type of night it was going to be, but I knew I was going to be aggressive. And I knew I was going to go out there and have as much fun as possible in front of my family and friends. And I did those things, and we were able to come away with a win. So it, it was a fun night. But you you can't really tell. Right. Some nights I shoot extremely well in warm-ups, and I brick. And some nights I shoot extremely poorly in warm-ups, and I go score 40. So you just never really know <laughs> how it's going to be until the game starts. Well, I, I could tell, for me, just, I mean, I watched you so much now. I, I could tell early on that you had a rhythm, and I turned to, to Wifey, and I said, this is going to be a big night. It's going to get 30-plus. So at least for me, I knew you were going to have a good night. You, you, you seemed... You seemed a little bouncy. You had that pull up early in transition from three that you knocked down, and it just—I don't know—they you were just in a you were in a real rhythm, and it was great to see. And uh, so, congratulations, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for for speaking that good juju into existence for me, man. Uh, that's oh, always that's probably more crucial than anything else. The confidence that you showed. In someone like me. <laughs> well, I have a lot of confidence in you, and uh, you, you know that, especially uh, when it comes to to making to getting buckets. Um, before we go to wine, last thing is really cool story. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar won six titles, is donating or auctioning off, I should say, four of his rings. And the reason reason for for it is because he wants to raise money for his charity, the Skyhook Foundation charity, to help benefit kids. Uh, and help them learn about science, technology, engineering, and math. And uh, I guess, like when you when you see that somebody like Kareem, who's seventy one, obviously has had a tremendous amount of success, one of the best players ever. What do you what do you think about? And do you ever think you could get to that point if you were fortunate enough to win multiple rings to to sell them? Like, is that possible or, or no? Uh, I think anything's possible. Uh, looking at what Kareem was able to do for this game, the impact he's made. Obviously, he's in a different stage of his life, you know, being in his 70s, you know, having won some championships, having seen so much change and turnover in the NBA in terms of people working it, the type of players that are playing in it, 
and the amount of money that it's generating. So you now for him to be able to use some of his resources, some of his personally hard, hard earned goods, rings, things of that nature for a better cause just, just shows you the type of person he is. So, you know, I, I'm thankful for, for him to, to be able to impact kids' lives like this, to be able to, you know, showcase this selfless act because, as you said before, he worked extremely hard uh, for these things. And to be able to, you know, essentially give them away, not give, but raise, allow them to raise money, you know, for a better cause just shows you the type of person he is. Yeah, yeah, and basketball is... As you know, it's one of the ultimate platforms. So good kudos to Kareem and uh, really just awesome story. You ready for some wine, C? Yes, sir. Cue the wine music, please. It's been a while since we've been able to dive into the finest of berries, the finest of grapes, the finest of fruits, if you may. But now the time has come. As I scroll through my app and look at some of these great wines I've been able to taste, a.k.a. devour, over the course of the last <laughs> two weeks. I spot something the listeners may like. They always talk about how the wines I drink are too expensive and that I have expensive taste and it's not affordable. Well, guess what? I have two affordable options for you. I'm going to start with the, and forgive me if I say this wrong, the Eurolot Drunken 2015. <laughs> what? It is a. Uh, it's J U R A N C O N France. Drunken, okay. drunken France. It is a dessert wine, and the average price is 18 bucks. It's among the top four percent of wines in the world. Obviously, you can drink it, you know, with your meal. But I had it with uh, dessert. It went really well with my sorbet, and based on you know some of the reviews I've seen. They say it's bold and sweet, um, beautifully elderberry and honey aroma, less concentrated than typical Sauternes, with brighter notes evident. Based on you know my preferred palate, I would say that it was very very good and it should be served around 47 degrees Fahrenheit. So for those of you that have you know red wine cellars versus white wine cellars, you can take it out, open it. And five minutes later, you can serve it. So that is the $18 wine recommendation that I have. And since I botched the name, I will take a picture of it so that they can post it and give you a better idea what I'm talking about. And since we were involved in France, I think it's only right that I step into Italy and also mention the Amaron de la Valpolicella Classico 2015. I know I said that wrong, but... That bottle was priced at 46 bucks. It received an 88 out of 100 on wine spectator, and it has great value. Top 25 Italian Amarone wines in the United States, and it's among the top 1% in the world. Very bold. Wow. Smooth, semi-sweet, and soft. Not very acidic, and I know that because I've been studying uh, some of those uh, TV shows on Netflix, and that the more your mouth waters when you drink it, the more acidic it is, so it's not very acidic at all. Wow, there's a little factoid. I, I appreciate that. I didn't. I didn't know that. So, so you you're not a fan of acidic wines. I am a fan of acidic wine. However, in this case, it wasn't very okay. acidic. It was more on the soft and uh, sweet side. But I do like acidic wine as well. Yeah, I do too. I'm not gonna lie, I like all wine. So I went to California with a little bit of a twist, uh, Sonoma Coast, and it's 
it's called Ren, which is my daughter's name. That's how we discovered. I was at uh, Valentine's dinner with uh, with my wife, and we saw it on the menu, and we were like, "What's you know?" Because we knew it wasn't the same spelling, R A E N, but the the psalm told us it was called Ren, so we naturally perked up, and we found out that it's a Mandavi project, separate from their winery, but it's their it's their project, and it. It has a twist too because it's it's aged in French oak barrels, so it has a very burgundy style, and it's it's about sixty sixty five dollars from which is pretty affordable for a really good Pinot, and it was really good. Basically, um, a Grand Cru type of style, and uh, I, I could not have been more impressed. And then you know the fact that it's my our daughter's name is is really cool. So R A E N. Ren, and uh, they like to say they bottle it without thinning or filtration to further keep those pure, delicate notes intact. Adding them to the list as we speak, as we speak. I appreciate you sharing that, and that's something that you got to get framed. You got to, you got to have that bottle signed I know. by your daughter and present it to her when she gets older. I really do. So basically, order some more, um, so you have it for her. I know. I really do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a case of that, and and we'll enjoy it this summer because. Uh, when you get a great Pinot, it's like every night you feel like you can, you're like, oh, just just have a glass because it's so good. It's so easy to drink. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's crucial, though. You, you have to find what you like and then consistently knock it down. But once again, we want to appreciate all our listeners out there. We want to appreciate them. We want to appreciate them. We want to celebrate them. You guys are hitting it right on the head by listening to this pull-up pod. <laughs> I was waiting for that. We got, <laughs> we got some nice guests coming up for you guys in the near future, so stay locked in. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, radio.com backslash pull up with CJ, or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to pull up. <laughs>